Well, in these weeks surrounding Christmas, we've been looking at the first chapter of the Gospel of John. So now we're back in the Gospel of John. We just read from uh, the letters to John, the epistles of John, and now we're back in the Gospel of John. And there's, even as I was reading from Second John this morning, you can see lots of the same themes that uh, come up uh, over and over again in John's writing. But among other things, in these great verses from The Gospel of John, chapter 1, we've noted that Jesus existed before the events of Bethlehem. And so all our messages have had that subtitle, Jesus Before Bethlehem. I read an article written this week called The Eternity Before Christmas, where the author, uh, a man by the name of David Mathis, starts out by saying, he says, The glory of Christmas is that it is not the beginning of Christ. The glory of Christmas is that it is not the beginning of Christ. What makes Christmas glorious for us, he's saying, is that Jesus actually existed before his arrival as a baby, born of a virgin, conceived of the Holy Spirit. Mathis goes on to say, he says, Christmas does indeed mark a conception and a birth. We rehearse Mary's magnificent song of submission and the shepherd's visit to pay homage to her newborn son, And we read that she treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. For mere humans, no doubt, such is the stuff of our origins. Prior to earthly beginnings, we simply did not exist. But it is not so with the Son of God. Unlike every other human birth, Christmas is not a beginning, but a becoming. Christmas is not a beginning, but a becoming. With that in mind... I encourage you to follow along as I read from John 1, verses 14 to 18, as we complete this prologue of John in in John chapter 1. John 1, verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. From his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. That is, Jesus has made the Father known. Let's bow together in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for your word. We thank you that we have access to your word. Lord, there's many in our world that, that can't actually say that. They are denied access to your word, and so they have to figure out other ways to get it. We can read it freely, at least for now, here in this time in which we live, in this place in which we live. And so we thank you for allowing us to hear from you, to hear from your voice. And Lord, we thank you for this great passage here this morning that talks about the glories and the wonders of the incarnation. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to understand this morning. These are not easy truths sometimes to understand. We, we, we confess that we don't truly understand how, how, how you can be one God in three persons. But Lord, we know that's true through your word. And so, Lord, we pray that the truth of this word might this morning penetrate our hearts 
We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, like I said, this is the last part of John's prologue, this first 18 verses, uh, to uh, John's account of Jesus' life and ministry. We've seen that John, regarding Christmas, doesn't go into any details on the actual birth of Jesus. Matthew and Luke, in their Gospels, describe uh, different parts of that event in their accounts. But John actually introduces Jesus by going back before Bethlehem. He goes back to creation, and really he goes way back even further than that into eternity past. And his point there is that Jesus has always existed. Only now in the wonderful uh, saving plan and the saving purpose of God, he is coming to this earth in human flesh. And so back in verse 1, we see, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John purposely here, I think, is echoing the very first words of the Bible, which read, in the beginning, God. And so, God there is, or we read in Genesis, that God always existed. In the beginning, God. So God has always existed, and now it says here in John chapter 1 that the Word has always existed. And putting that together with verse 14, we see that this Word refers to Jesus, the one who became flesh. Now, as we've been going through this passage, we could go in many different directions, not only with this passage, but also with all of John chapter 1. I said last week that, um, that this could be a bit of a, a, a mind-bending section of the Bible. John here is writing to a Greek-Roman uh, kind of culture. That's the time in which he wrote, somewhere around in the 60s uh, AD, likely. And, and he's writing into a culture that was into all this sort of philosophy, rhetoric, uh, logic, you know, the time of, this is just right after the time of Aristotle and Socrates and Plato, all those sorts of people. If you've ever taken philosophy, you know part of that world. You've studied what things were like back then. But he's, he's really just trying to connect to that world in some ways by trying to explain how Jesus could be both man and God. And because of that, there's... There have been lots of debates about this passage, right from the time of the early church. Uh, false teachers and, and heretics and even modern cults have taken these verses in wrong directions. And lots of early church councils have used this passage to make accurate statements about who God is and who Jesus is. And so we have things like the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed and the Council of Chalcedon and other things like that that have made statements that we still recite some, some liturgical churches, and I think sometimes it would be good if we would recite some of these things too. Uh, they recite these things in their church to give accurate confessions of who God is and who Jesus is and who the Holy Spirit is and how it all works together in one triunity. And so in many ways, this is really a foundational passage for understanding the Incarnation, for understanding why the first Christmas happened. But... I just want to say that this is also a real practical passage. And it's not only here to help us prove theological points about the Trinity. This passage is here to increase our amazement at what God did for us, what God did for you by sending his son. This has personal application to your life. It's not here not only to, it's here not only to increase our amazement, but it's also here to increase our faith. 
That's why John recorded this gospel. He actually tells us why. This is one of the letters where we're told why um, this is written. Way down in chapter 20, verse 31, close to the end of the gospel, he says, these things are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. By looking at Jesus' life, John's hope is that people might believe Jesus unto eternal life. And eternal life starts not when we die, but at the moment we are saved. We have eternal life in a whole new way once we die, but we already do have eternal life. We do possess eternal life right now. At the moment we are saved, at that moment when we, as it said in verse 12, when we receive him, and when we become children of God. So the fact that Jesus existed before creation, and the fact that Jesus existed before Bethlehem, is significant for you right now after Bethlehem, after Christmas, after that first Christmas. And we can see that here in John chapter 1, verses 14 to 18. You can, you can see it in the way that John uses the personal pronouns here. Pay attention to those in, in this section particularly, always, but especially in this section. In the way God's coming applies to humankind. In the way his coming is significant for you and for me. Look what it says. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have received his glory. Then down in verse 16. And and from his fullness we have all received. Grace upon grace. John wants to make us linger on and, and to ponder these great blessings of Christmas. It's a really unspeakable. And uh, when you think about grace, they're undeserved blessings. And the giver of those blessings, of course, is God, by means of, through Jesus. And you see that here in these five verses too. The glory that we receive is, verse 14, glory as of the only Son from the Father full of grace and truth. Verse 17, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Verse 18, he, that is the Son, has made him, the Father, known. Just think of those blessings from God to us, from a, from a holy, gracious God, altogether different than us, altogether holy, to undeserving, guilty sinners. These are God's blessings to his people. His undeserved blessings, his gracious blessings. And so we just want to unpack all that just a little bit here this morning. This is, this is a hard one to be able to get right underneath and to get everything that's, that's in this, but we just want to, to make an effort to at least get some of it here this morning. Number one, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. This is one of those uh, sentences in the Bible that, that some of us can maybe get so familiar with that, that, that we sometimes miss its full impact. It's a sentence that's got really three parts to it. You can divide it up pretty easily there. You can see those three parts. One, the word became flesh. If you look at that literally, it's, it's a little bit of a strange sentence, isn't it? If you just take that literally, now we already, we already kind of put our meaning into it because we've studied the rest of this passage. We know what the word means. We know what flesh means. But if you, if you look at that literally, it's like one of the words, say in your bulletin, just rising up to life and, and, and having skin and bones. Sort of a strange concept. Now, now we, already, 
know that this is, like I said, talking about Jesus coming from heaven to earth, but just keep that literal part of it in your mind for just a second and just think of it in terms of people who are maybe coming now from an Old Testament background and reading this verse. Because John is not only talking to a Greek and Roman culture, but he's talking to people specifically that are, not all, but at least some of which are steeped in in Judaism and also live in that Greek and Roman culture. So the Old Testament would have been familiar to them. Well, back in the days of Moses, God actually spoke to him up on a mountain. It's one of the, the seminal parts for, for Jews, some of the uh, seminal parts of history, where God spoke to Moses up on Mount Sinai and gave the law. And these words are accompanied by all manner of special effects, if you remember reading that in Exodus. There's fire, there's uh, the whole mountain is shaking, there's smoke coming out of the mountain, there's all sorts of pyrotechnics happening. Uh, but that all came as part and parcel of God speaking to earth. That's what happens when God speaks, things shake. Well, Moses heard the voice of God himself. He heard the very words of God. In fact, the people heard some of them, and they, they really didn't like what was going on accompanying those things, and they said, no, no, Moses, you go and talk to him. Um, we'll stay down here, and you just tell us what he said. Well, included in those words were the Ten Commandments. And just as a visible reminder that God spoke those words, God actually wrote those words on tablets of stone. So in Deuteronomy 9, verse 10, Moses says to the people, And the Lord gave me the two tablets of stone, written with the finger of God. And on them were all the words that the Lord had spoken. So he's taking his words now, and he's putting them on something that they can see, something visible. So God's voice is is heard audibly, and some of those words God, God writes on two stone tablets. God reveals his laws. He's, he, he actually reveals himself, and he does it in a very supernatural way. Like, no one, like you can't write with your finger on stone and have it stay there. I mean, you can pretend to write, but nothing will be on the stone. But God did that as a way of trying to help them understand that, I think. And so God's voice is, is heard, God's voice is seen, he, he reveals himself, and, and they're there for the people of Israel to see and to touch. And all of that is very meaningful. And you remember Moses comes down to the mountain, he sees them worshiping a golden calf, and he, so, so he breaks the first version of those stones, but God does it again. He, he puts them on stones again, and that second version, those two stone tablets are placed inside of the Ark of the Covenant which stayed then in the most holy place, in the center of the Israelite camp as it moved about in the wilderness. And so we see here that those words, those words of God that were on these tablets of stone were treated with great reverence and great respect. Now fast forward to John chapter 1. When John describes Jesus as the word, and Jewish readers especially, they would have made that connection with what he first was talking about, where the voice of God spoke on that mountain. And they would have thought that God was speaking again. When it said the word was God, back in verse 1, they would have understood that, at least to some degree. But when it says now in verse 14, that the word became flesh, that would have thrown them for a bit of a loop. And that's exactly what this is trying to accomplish. Now, God's word isn't just supernaturally at this point, as he's saying that the word became flesh. It's not just being supernaturally inscribed on tablets. God's word is now supernaturally 
taking on life. God's word is coming to breathe and to live. God's word is coming off of those stone tablets and coming to life. God's word will have skin and bones. The word became flesh. And of course, all those Old Testament pictures looked ahead to Jesus anyways. For example, when it came to the law, Jesus really did become the law, didn't it? He, he, he fulfilled the law perfectly. He was the only one who could ever keep the law in every part of it, perfectly, for his whole life. That's why, as a human, Jesus can represent us before God in the wonderful plan of God. He can represent us before God and be the one through whom we can stand before God. It's because the always existing word became flesh. As he says in John 8, 29, I always do the things that are pleasing to the Father. I always do the things that are pleasing to the Father. And it's a good thing he did, because otherwise we'd have no hope of standing before holy God. Doing the things that are always pleasing is exactly what God requires. And no human can lay claim to that, except now one human. The word became flesh. That is significant. That he became flesh is significant for you in thinking of where he came from. A couple of passages spell that out. One is 2 Corinthians 8, 9, where it says, For for the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, for you the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ came that though he was rich, though he was enjoying all the, the riches of heaven with his heavenly Father, it says, yet for your sake he became, and there's that word, The word became flesh. Here it says, He became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. It's just a tremendous thing that happened. God had, Jesus had all the riches. He he existed with the Father in heaven, enjoying enjoying perfect fellowship and communion with him. And yet it says, He, for your sake, became poor so that you then by his poverty might become rich might have all the blessings of the heavenlies. The the word becoming flesh is coming here into the sin-infested world so that sinners might have access to the riches of heaven. The other passage is Philippians 2. A great passage that you all know where it says that Jesus, our great Lord and King, even though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, though he could have and had every right to, but made himself nothing taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and then being found in human form, it says he humbled himself by becoming, there's that word again from became, he became, the word became flesh, Uh, he became poor, so that we might become rich here, he says he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Imagine that. Is this significant for you? You bet it is. The Word became flesh. Those are life-altering, life-transforming words for humankind. And then it says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now John uses an interesting word there that has even more Old Testament connections, and you might have heard this explained before. Someone has 
taught from this passage, but the sentence literally says, the word became flesh and pitched its tent, pitched his tent with us. It's sort of the same word for tabernacle in the Old Testament, the tent of meeting. It's pointing back to that Israelite traveling camp in, in the wilderness and talking about specifically that tent of meeting or that tabernacle. This is the place where they actually kept that Ark of the Covenant that I was talking about before. It's, it's where they made their sacrifices. It was geographically always placed right in the center of the camp. And, and God lays out those plans very specifically to Moses in the book of Exodus, where it should be and where all the different tribes should be in, in relation to that, um, in, in relation to the center, in relation to that tent, the tent of meeting. It was where Moses or the high priest would go to meet with God. And again, you can't look at all those things without noticing that Jesus fulfills all those things now for us. We now meet God through the person of Jesus. That's how we come to God, through Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. We, we worship in Jesus' name. Jesus is the center of our church worship. Talked about that a few weeks ago, that all our worship needs to be Christ-centered. It is through Jesus' sacrifice that we now have access to God and through his sacrifice that we can even have any sort of fellowship with God. Now, I wish I had more time to go into everything that this means, but just think of the significance of those words. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. God is now with his people. The God that is altogether holy, altogether separate from us, is now with his people. Just saying that, Emmanuel, God with us. He, he dwells among us and, and in us. He came down from heaven. Just like the glory of God came into the Old Testament tabernacle. But now the glory of God doesn't just fill a tent where there was limited access. Remember, it was only the high priest that could go in there. He dwells with his people now. And it, it, it's a more intimate fellowship. It's a more personal fellowship. The Word now pitches His tent among us in the person of Jesus Christ. This is what makes Christmas amazing for us who have placed our trust in Jesus Christ. And then thirdly, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. And it goes on to say, glory is of the only. Uh, and when you see there only, I think it says that down again in verse 18, it, it really talking about the unique Son, the one and only Son from the Father, so God is glorious. The Son of God is glorious. He always has been. And now it says that we have actually seen his glory. Now how is that? How, how can we see the amazingly blight, uh, blight, bright and blinding glory of God? How can we, mere humans, see the glory of God? Remember what happened in the Old Testament, right? They couldn't see the glory of God. If they saw God, they would die. So how does that happen? Well, when the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, the world was able to see God's glory. How? Where? In whom? In the person of Jesus Christ. God's glory now actually becomes approachable. Now, the next question you might ask is, how did God's glory, if, if God's glory is brightness, if it's a, a shining brightness, a heaviness that, that we can't even see, and look at, how did God's glory look on Jesus? Did Jesus walk around with a glow? And did it make him immediately attractive? Were people drawn to him? 
Well, we could say no to all those questions, right? In fact, as we saw in the previous verses, most people rejected Jesus. Most people didn't perceive his glory. Most people stayed in darkness. But the last words of John 1.14 really help us out a little bit. It says that we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. And then these words, full of grace and truth. So this is where God's glory is seen. It is seen by those people who see in Jesus grace and truth. Now, there are many, many ways where God's grace can be seen by everyone. In fact, anything, that good, anything good that happens to anyone, Christian or non-Christian, can be attributed to God's grace. We sometimes call this common grace. It, it, it's common to everyone, even though no one really deserves anything good. That's what grace is, right? It's unmerited favor. And we know that to be true. We're, we're all sinners. We've all transgressed God's law, yet we do enjoy good things from God. If you have good health, that's God's grace. If you have a good job, chalk that up to God's grace. If you're living above the poverty line, that's God's grace to you. It's common grace. But there's another kind of grace from God that is even more glorious. And that's saving grace. In Jesus, we see and experience the glory of God's saving grace. Common grace is, is limited to this world, but saving grace lasts forever. God graciously favors us with his goodness and salvation. And that comes to us precisely because the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory full of grace and full of truth. There's the other one. Jesus is glorious in that we see not just his grace, but we see truth. Now this is connected with salvation too. In order to truly see the glory of God, we have to come to to grips with the truth of the gospel. In Jesus, the one who is Remember, he describes himself as the way, the truth, and the life. It is in Jesus that we see truth in many different ways. We see the truth primarily in two ways. We see the truth about ourselves. That even though he is human, we are utterly unlike Jesus in one huge way. And that is that we are all sinners. At heart, we're selfish, we're rebellious, we are prideful. We, we don't want anyone, never mind God, telling us what to do. And when we do that, we really are, in essence, de-godding God. In Jesus, we see love. We see truth. We see justice, mercy, compassion. Jesus is utterly different than us. And so we see the truth of ourselves compared to who Jesus is. Jesus is all those things. Love, justice, mercy, compassion. Jesus cares enough. First, he cares for God's glory. But secondly, he cares for us. Cares enough for us. He's compassionate enough for us to die for us. And to give us his life as a ransom for our sins. And so we'd see the truth about ourselves in Jesus. In Jesus, we've seen God's glory full of grace and truth. What a privilege to see this. 
God sent Jesus so that we could see his grace and truth, enough so that we could come to saving faith. I always go back to this verse. It's one of my favorites in helping me see what God has done for for me, helping me see what he did in order to awaken and arouse my faith and to give me life. It's in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6. It says, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts, to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Same God who said, let there be light, back in Genesis 1, verse 3, into a dark world, has shone in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Where? It's in the face of Jesus Christ. It's in the face of Jesus Christ. This is the significance of God's glory for you and for me if we have seen it. It takes me from a place of spiritual darkness, a place of bondage to sin, it takes me from that place to a place of light and a place of freedom from sin in the face of Christ. We have seen his glory full of grace and truth. Well, I know I'm not going through this passage word for word. And in verse 15 there, it talks about how John the Baptist witnesses to the pre-existence of Jesus, but sort of as a parenthetical statement. But go down to verse 16. I just want you to see here how this great Christmas truth of God coming into humanity affects humanity. Verse 16, And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Now, it's not totally clear. There's some debate as to what those words, grace upon grace, how they should be interpreted. But I really like the translation, the one that I read here, the English Standard Version, the ESV. From the fullness of God, in the person of Jesus, we have received grace upon grace. Some people say it should be grace grace that replaces grace, pointing to the fact that the the, the New Testament replaces the Old Testament and those sort of things, or, or grace instead of grace, or grace that builds on grace. But here I just think it means God's grace upon grace, God's limitless, God's, God's super abundant grace, grace heaped upon grace. Now if you're a, a Christian, you have not only been a recipient of God's amazing saving grace, but God's grace doesn't stop there at salvation. God's grace just keeps on coming. It keeps on coming in an overflowing abundance. And saying here that Jesus is a conduit of God's blessings and he gives grace that's overflowing as you continue to follow him. Now, in our remaining sin, and and because we don't always see clearly, we don't always recognize God's grace right off the bat. And especially so in times of weakness. Or in times when we're in a season of suffering. But when some time starts to pass, we start to see with greater clarity God's purposes. Uh, the Apostle Paul talks about, uh, in First, Second Corinthians chapter 12, been doing a lot of Second Corinthians today, in Second Corinthians chapter 12, he talks about some kind of thorn in the flesh that, that he has and that he's asking God to take away from him repeatedly. But do you remember what finally happened there? He actually, he's calling for God to take this thing away and, and, and Jesus actually shows up. 
He hears Jesus' voice somehow. We don't know how that happened, but he says that Jesus answered him, and he tells him, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. saying, just keep trusting in me. I'm not going to take away this thorn in the flesh, but my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. That's where we really start to see God's power. When we are weak, he is strong, he goes on to say. And that's all that Jesus says. That's all he leaves him with. And then he, his voice sort of is quiet again. My grace is sufficient. Have you ever felt like that? Or has, has God ever comforted you in that way through Christ? Just heard that voice saying, just trust me. My grace is sufficient. In your weakness, Jesus proves himself to be everything you need. That's grace upon grace. And if you look hard enough, you'll find God's grace to be everywhere. That's in times of suffering. But his grace is even there in places where you don't see it. Maybe in protecting you from harm. Maybe in keeping you from temptation. Maybe you've seen his grace in a relationship. In something that's happened in your family. Maybe you've seen God's grace in giving you a good job. Maybe you've seen God's grace in keeping you in a difficult job. Maybe you've seen it in giving you good health or in giving you an illness. Maybe you've seen his grace in helping you purchase something to be used for his glory. Or you've seen his grace in keeping you from purchasing something that might distract you from treasuring God above everything. We could go on and on. I'm sure you could make your own list. But Jesus is a pipeline of God's blessings from his fullness We have received grace upon grace. While all of this is part and parcel of the glory of Christmas, the eternal Son of God, the Word of God, became flesh. The Word of God came to life, came to this earth, dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Right at the end of the article I mentioned off the top, David Mathis writes this. He says, Christmas is far more than the celebration of a great man's birth. God himself, in the second person of the Godhead, entered into our space, entered into our frail humanity, surrounded by our sin. Why? To rescue us. To rescue us. He came. He became one of us. God sent God. The Father gave his own Son for us and for our salvation. And I would add that he now continues to lavish us with grace upon grace. And so as as you change the calendar in your home, on your computer, as as you flip it to to a new year. I think a passage like this should, should make us commit ourselves again to, to really just treasuring Jesus Christ above all things. Don't let, don't let the part of Christmas end where you treasure Christ, where you worship him. Keep going on that. Treasure Jesus Christ above all things as you, as you strive to, to continue to follow him and to walk with him. Let's commit ourselves to not get sidetracked and, and, and distracted by, by less important things, 
And really, everything is on that list other than Jesus himself. Keep him prioritized. Let's prioritize Jesus and let's keep him as precious in our affections. And then as followers of Jesus, here's the other thing, as those to whom God has made the glory of Jesus known, if, if, if he's made Jesus known to you, what ought your response to be? To, to now reflect the light, right? So let's commit ourselves to make the glories of Jesus known to what is a dark world. If you've seen his glory, make it a priority to make the glory of Jesus known to those who make up your world. You know who that is. The people that you interact with might be your neighbors, might be at work, might be at school. Um, Just a different, whatever makes up your world, it's dark and they need your light. They need to see the light in you and they need to hear you give witness to the light with words. Let's bow together in prayer. Our Father, this is such a glorious and magnificent and almost, in many ways, out of reach part of your word. And yet, we know for sure that it isn't out of reach. You wouldn't have given it to us if it was. And so, Lord, we thank you that we can see here in, in black and white, actually in, in, in glorious technicolor, the beauty and the wonder of your plan of redeeming your people unto yourself for your glory. We thank you for sending your son, for giving your son. We thank you that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we thank you that in him was life and that the life was the light of men. We thank you that you sent the light to shine in darkness and to shine into our lives. We're grateful for all that have received the light, for all these here who are privileged to be called your children. And we pray that as the light now shines through us and in us, that many would be turned from darkness to light through our lives and through our testimony. And now as we head into 2016, may you, may you all here grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. For to him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen.